This is the day that the Lord has made, and we shall rejoice and be glad in it. I'm Reverend J. Stewart Glover, and you are listening to Faith Talk. On this platform, we aim to draw relevancy from the biblical text while bringing clarity to our own religious experience. Now, today we're going to do something a little different. Diverse faith traditions have clearly identifiable theological differences, and we're not here today to debate or attempt to eliminate those differences. However, we are afforded the privilege of learning from each other. And what is the the importance of that? Well, Tiffany Pewitt, in her article on Our World Critical Pedagogy for Interfaith Education, she writes this, The crux of interfaith education honors the insight that we cannot know ourselves without knowing the other. The self is inherently relational by nature and consequently cannot truly know anything in isolation. Kieran Scott writes this, The aim of religious education, expressed from a reconceptualist axiology, is to foster a greater appreciation of one's own religious life and less misunderstanding of other people's. So now, today I have a special guest. His name is Giovanni Young, and Giovanni is a college student, he's Catholic, and is invited here today to share with us some of his insights into the Catholic tradition and share about his own spiritual journey. So Giovanni, thank you for being with us today. How are you? I'm doing well, Reverend Glover. Thank you for having me. and Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share my you know, humble body of knowledge about the Catholic faith with your many listeners. Well, again, thanks for being here. So I wanted to start out by asking you this. Did you grow up attending church services as a child? And when did you begin to feel um, attracted to to a theological, you know, forming a theological, um, uh, you know, framework in a more mature way. So I attended Catholic school. I have attended Catholic schools throughout my entire life. So in parochial school, every Friday, first Friday of the month, there's a mass for the entire school. So while my family wasn't particularly um, in my earlier life, religious in terms of, you know, going to Mass every Sunday and being active in the community that way, we were still very much encouraged to ask questions about faith, to explore faith. Obviously, I was in an educational framework that prioritized faith and the values and lessons that can be learned from there. So while not necessarily regular attendance of Sunday Mass, I did attend Mass through my school and my family was very influential in helping me to form an idea of my faith. But what I would say is really religion as, or faith as a concept, became very important to me with the death of my grandfather when I was about seven or eight years old. Mm-hmm. Now this was a man that I was very deeply connected to. I, despite not knowing much about him, which I've learned obviously later in life, uh, I had a deep love for him and compassion for him. So when he died, That was really the first time that I had noticed a lack of 
love in a sense in my life. You know, this person, not to say that there was a lack of love from the family in any way, but this one person that was a source of compassion and care for me had suddenly gone. So then I had to realize, well, you know, how can this be? And I don't know if it was whether through some sort of stubbornness or something, but just sort of this unwillingness to accept that like, well, this person isn't really gone. And then realizing that, well, this is the point of heaven so that we are able to, you know, still be in communion in a certain sense with these loved ones of ours, to talk to them and pray with them and pray for them as they begin their journey into heaven. So that was really when faith became important to me. Mm -hmm. The theology started to interest me in my sort of later middle school and earlier high school years when we started answering questions about faith and using logic to answer questions about faith, which I felt was very reaffirming as somebody who always likes to find a solution. You know, I'm an accounting major, so I do like to always be able to find some sort of a, you know, numerical or logical or critical solution to a problem. So for me, theology really opened this door to being, you know, you don't just accept things within your faith in terms of like, well, this is just what's said. You can actually discover and learn things about your faith through knowing other principles of it. And that I think has been the most empowering thing. Well, and absolutely. That's really <clears throat> absolutely. I mean, theology is formed not only through scripture, but through our experience, through our logic, through our um, social location, our culture, and our tradition. It's more than just reading the uh, um, religious text that forms our theology. So I'm glad to hear that. So <clears throat> what are some of the things that you believe are central or core to the Catholic tradition um, that we would like to discuss today? What is at the center of this tradition? So I would think one of the largest differentiating factors. I mean, obviously, I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge is we're all Christian. So obviously, we're going to have, you know, more commonalities, far more commonalities than we will have differences. And it really is a shame when you look at the history of how the Reformation has played out about the amount of blood that has been shed and conflicts that have been started over issues that were very similar but slightly different. So I think it's first important to acknowledge that we're very similar traditions. Mm -hmm. But I think what would define Catholicism in particular is, as opposed to the Protestant denominations would be the nature of the Eucharist being the first point and the second point being the hierarchy of the church and how that carries over in a very practical way and a different way into the lives of Catholics and into the life of Catholic teaching. All right, so, so let's start out. Let's start out with the Eucharist. So, what, what, you know? Now, let's just think that for a moment, maybe there's somebody who's who's has questions about faith, and and I would just want you to share with them what the Eucharist is, what it means to you, and you know. <clears throat> so, so why don't we just? as maybe they never heard this before, okay? So just assume that they never heard this before, and this is a time for you to kind of like teach them. Sure. So from a so I'll talk about it from a Catholic and a Protestant perspective to get, you know, sort of both sides of the coin in here. But first of all, from a Catholic perspective, the Eucharist relies on, so it is the body and, or the blood and, sorry, the bread and wine that are consumed during church or during you know a mass service and what happens for 
the Catholic tradition and the sacrament of the Eucharist is the priest actually calls down the spirit of God into the body and or into the bread and wine, making it the body and blood of Christ. So this is through something called transubstantiation, where we argue that the whole substance of the bread and the wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. Now, this is different from consubstantiation, which is the idea um, that the body and blood are, or that the bread and wine are merely sort of this remembrance of the Eucharist and that they serve along with, that they exist sort of commingled with the Spirit of God rather than transformed into the body and blood of Jesus. Right. So that's really the key difference there. Right. <clears throat> so um, how often, how often is the um, Eucharist do you partake of the Eucharist, the, the Lord's Supper? How often is that um, served, as they say? So minimally, now that I'm on a college campus and have you know, access to a network of friends who are also um, engaged with their faith, we go to Sunday Mass every week. But then other than that, I will sometimes attend Masses during the day if I have time, which I've found is sort of just a nice little reflective thing to be able to do. So minimally, I receive the Eucharist once a week, but then sometimes I'll receive it a few other times throughout the week. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Do our children allowed to partake of the Eucharist? Assuming that they have received the um, their first Holy Communion, they are able to. But the sort of barrier for that is, and this is why it's usually done for Catholic parochial schools in the seventh, I mean, sorry, in the uh, first or second grade is because the age of reason in the Catholic Church, according to Catholic teaching, is seven. Right. So this age of reason is really the age at which we're able to understand and fully sort of exercise our conscience and respond to its movings in us and realize that what we are doing is sinful or that we can recognize something as sinful and therefore avoid it. So until we're able to gain that understanding, the working of Jesus within us through the Eucharist sort of has less of an effect. So we reserve the Eucharist, the receiving of the Eucharist for people who are able to understand what sin is. Now, First Holy Communion is often then paired with receiving the Sacrament of Reconciliation, because at least for Catholics, ideally one receives the Eucharist in what is called the state of grace. So this is the state right after you've gone to um, reconciliation where you have been effectively released of the sins that you've confessed. And in this case, one would ideally confess all of one's sins, you know, not in this sort of list fashion that people often imagine people, you know, sitting down with the priest and going, I- Pulling out you know, the old niggle pad. <laughs> right, like saying, you know, I was rude to my mother seven times this week. I violated my diet three times this week, things like that. Instead, it's more of this confession of like broad things. Like I have, I've noticed a trend in my life of arrogance, or I've noticed a trend in my life of greed, things like that. But anyway, the whole point of our being able to confess these sins and receive this state of grace is so that we're welcoming the body of Christ into sort of a, uh, a pure temple, in a sense. You know, our bodies are described as temples of the Lord. So we're sort of, it's almost as if you were having very important company over, you would clean your house, it's that sort of an idea. We're having the greatest, you know, importance of company coming to us. So we're 
fully cleaning out our house. Amen. Now, I'm going to move on <clears throat> to another. Um, well, let me just back up a second. And I think you may have answered this already. Um, the Catholic posi position on infant baptism. I think you may have implied the answer to that question already. So what is the procedure for a infant baptism or is there one? Right. So in terms of, well, first let's look at the logic behind this. So according to the teachings of the church, mm -hmm. we are all born, and this is true of all Christians, we are all born with this original sin that must be washed away through baptism. Right. In order to initiate people into the church, which we try and do as quickly as possible, and there have been different, you know, sort of, sometimes what you'll notice is that theological revelations will also emerge out of social context and out of historical context which people often like to downplay but i think is important to recognize because saint augustine talks about you know the book uh, or the book of scripture responding to the book of nature and the two of them interacting so if there's something that we find in nature that we have realized contradicts what we have as people discovered or assumed about our faith because we are susceptible to faults or fallible people and we're living in God's creation. So clearly, you know, we have to take the approach that the designer would know more about his creation than the people living within it. We have to respond to social context. So a lot of infant baptism did come out of the idea of, you know, this question of how will people ever enter heaven if they die very early in life, which unfortunately was a reality and is a reality still in many parts of the world that children have a mortality rate. But that's sort of the historical context of being able to get people, you know, as quickly as possible, recognizing that people are dying, being able to set them up for a position where they can enter heaven. But what infant baptism does from a theological perspective is washes us of our original sin. So this is one of the three steps of initiation into the church. So there's baptism, confirmation, and um, the Eucharist and the reception of reconciliation that are all sort of lumped together as these sacraments of initiation into the church, which are essentially the three sacraments where after the completion of which, so after one is confirmed in the Catholic tradition, because we go baptism, reconciliation, and the Eucharist, and then confirmation. So after one is confirmed, you've become a full member of the church and can then decide on a vocational path of clergy life or marriage or consecrated singlehood. But infant baptism then is this first initial step into getting us into the church. So, so we're freeing no, ourselves of this initial sense. So there's no, the age of reason doesn't apply to that infant baptism then. The age of reason doesn't apply there, but think about what's interesting is that we only free ourselves really of that one initial sin. So we're sort of getting ourselves over the first hump. You know, if there's these sort of three speed bumps in the road, we're getting ourselves over the first hump. Then what reconciliation allows us to do is free ourselves of the other, you know, little, it's like that set, getting over that second hump of freeing ourselves or being able to free ourselves of the rest of our sins. Mm -hmm. So we do... We do create the exemption, sort of like a, the exemption from reason, almost in a sense, for original sin, because we consider that not the fault of the individual. But anything that becomes the fault of the individual, then we realize that we need to be able to be of an age where we can recognize and accept fault for what we've done so that we can free ourselves of it. Amen. Well, I like that. <clears throat> so now we're going to um, move on 
I was looking, I was on Facebook um, yesterday, as a matter of fact, and there was this huge debate going on about um, prayers for the dead. And, and b believe me, people from, from different traditions were chiming in with all kinds of um, arguments against the biblical, um, theological soundness of all of this. So would you describe to me the church's position on, on I believe it's referred to as the community of saints? Right. So sainthood in the Catholic Church is something that even a lot of Catholics don't really understand. So any person who dies, and from conversations that you and I have had, I believe this is also true in the Baptist tradition and in many others, anybody who dies automatically gains this status of sainthood if they are admitted into heaven. What the Catholic Church is really <clears throat> recognizing in the community of saints when it thinks about, when you think about, for instance, um, the litany of the saints. So we're praying to those specified saints who have been canonized. So that's the first important distinction to make, is that anybody who enters heaven is a saint, according to all of our traditions. But then what the Catholic Church says is there are certain people who are recognized for holiness sort of above and beyond other people in terms of giving your life in sort of an extreme way of service or of love of God or any, you know, something associated with those. And those people then become canonized saints, assuming we're able to prove other certain criteria about them. For instance, for the Catholic Church, uh, two miracles are required to have been performed by a saint in order for that person to be recognized as a canonized saint. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just sort of it's almost you could really think about it as it's almost um, service in one's entire life. So, you know, we all complete certain acts of service in our mortal, our earthly lives, ideally. And then these saints that become canonized have carried that life of service over even into the afterlife to working in other people's mortal lives to help them. So it's really sort of this proof that one has lived a continuous, in the greatest extent, life of service. So okay. that's how we think about the canonized saints. Right. So uh, as we had a conversation earlier, and I think it's important for you to to bring clarity to this um, to this topic, when you mentioned the the militant church and the triumphant church, can you please explain the difference between yes. the two? So. This is a very important distinction to make. And obviously, at first, you know, you hear the church militant and you think like, oh, that sounds a little, you know, not, you know, I mean, some people might think that sounds like plainly terroristic, which it's not. We're not active. We're not, you know, uh, out here militating in, you know, a sort of like a military or militia sense. What we're doing is we're militating against sin in the world. So that's where the term church militant comes from before, you know, we all start thinking that we're trying to raise another holy army or anything. That's not what we're talking about here. And that, isn't, that hasn't been the goal for many centuries. But there's actually three important divisions here. So it's the church militant, which are the people on earth currently working against, currently militating against sin in themselves and in the world. Mm -hmm. Then we have the church penitent, which are people who have died and are eligible to enter heaven, but have to enter purgatory first. So purgatory is sort of this cleansing. It's almost, It's been described as the antechamber of heaven where one is washed and purified for, you know, I mean, some people, you hear people sometimes throw around the concept of like, your soul is in purgatory for 10,000 years. No one can ever know how long it truly is. And at that point, the time doesn't really matter because we're in a state of 
a temporality anyway. But purgatory is really this place where Catholics believe that your soul is purified of its imperfections before entering heaven. And the reason for that is because people often think like, well, isn't this terribly cruel? You know, we have this idea on earth that Jesus will accept you for anything that you've done and will forgive you for anything that you've done if you are truly, you know, penitent or truly repentant. Mm -hmm. But then we have this concept of like, well, why is it now that there's this waiting room before we're able to enter heaven? Because on earth, it was just that we'd be forgiven for our sins. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is actually that, and we see evidence of this with Moses and with anybody else who's encountered the presence of God in scripture. And it was this like blinding light or this unbearable presence. Sometimes you even hear it described as a painful presence. What will happen, actually, we believe, to souls that enter heaven in an unpurified state is they would not be able to exist in the presence of God and would be destroyed. So purgatory, instead of this like cruel time of punishment where God makes you sit there and think about what you've done for, you know, whether it's 10,000 years or however long before you're able to enter heaven, this is really the place where we purify our souls before we enter God's presence so that we can actually live in God's presence comfortably. Be like if we just shot people up into space without a rocket, well, they'd all die. So mm-hmm. that sort of a thing. We have to give people the right equipment. Okay. But that's the church penitent. And the church triumphant is just everybody who's gone through purgatory and has been accepted into heaven. Now, you know, they've triumphed over their sins is the idea. and They are now in heaven. Okay, so I want to back up just a moment to, um, <clears throat> I want to back up to um, this Facebook debate that I was having. What they were talking about, I wasn't having it, I was just watching the, the thread. They were talking about people praying to the dead for the dead's well-being and people praying um to the dead in terms of um, intercessory prayer for themselves. So what's, right. your, what's so, your view on that? So this is a concept that people often misinterpret as, mm-hmm. you know, the argument oftentimes is thrown around that like, well, the reason there are statues in Catholic churches is because they're praying to these saints. And one can understand where that misconception comes from. So we think about the ancient pagan religions, a lot of times it would be literally that you weren't even praying to the spirit of the god you thought the god inhabited the statue you were praying to this stone edifice sitting in front of you right so that's decidedly not where the church stands on this issue i think people often conflate pagan art with and the religious significance that it has with christian art and think that they're or catholic art and think that they're accomplishing the same goals when really this is where we talk about historical context a lot of those ancient traditions from Rome and Greece and other areas where Christianity became prominent were carried over into Catholic practices, but the meanings were changed. So we just use statues and other things as a form of remembrance mm-hmm. and remembering. So, you know, say you saw a picture of um, St. Catherine in a church, uh, St. Catherine of Alexandria. That would just be to call you to remember the fact that a lot of people in, especially women, in pursuit of education have suffered. So that's the whole point of saint iconography and things like that. Now, in terms of intercessory prayer, that accomplishes the same goal. You're not really praying to the saint. You're praying to the saint to ask God to do something. We don't think, for instance, that saints can perform miracles without the help of God. Everything is dependent on the presence of God in this system. So when you're praying to a saint, you're really just communicating with them. 
I mean, prayer in its essence is communication. Right. We communicate with people who are other than God. I communicate with you right now. People communicate with each other. Those people on Facebook surely sounded like they were communicating with each other. <laughs> but that's all this really is. It's like if imagine you were in a school and you know that the principal is the head of that school and has ultimate authority to make decisions about how it is administered. You, as a concerned student, could still go to one of your teachers and say, you know, hey, I think that this should be done in the school. Like, I don't know, our lunch period should be longer, something like that. And then that person can run it up the flagpole to the principal and say, hey, students are asking me if we can extend the lunch period. So really what it does is it intensifies your intersect or your prayer to God by saying not only I, but me and this person that you and your church have recognized as someone who not only has done good works throughout their lives, but understands who you are and what, you know, God is really understands God to be somebody to sort of validate our concern and our prayer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is the real power of intercession. It's not that we're praying to the saints. It's that we're asking sort of, it's almost like bringing in expert witnesses. We're asking people who are uniquely versed in the nature of God to validate our concerns to God. Like parents. Right, exactly like parents. Parents, family, and friends that have gone on. <clears throat> are they included in this um, uh, community of saints? I mean, assuming that they wind up dying and going to heaven, yes. On earth, <laughs> we would still consider them part of the church militant. Right. Uh, but it is sort of the same thing, and I think it's interesting that you bring that up because there are a lot of, you know, heaven and earth have the same designer. So there are obviously, and Catholic um, theology stresses this a lot, especially my formation in it did, that there are things on earth that mirror how things will be in heaven. And Christ himself has told us this at various points throughout the scriptures. So the fact that the entire organization that I've described with um, you know, the principal and the teachers and that sort of an intercession of what you described with parents, that is a very good way for us to understand what intercessory prayer is in heaven because everybody who is in heaven was on earth. So things naturally just work in the same way. And God has designed it in a way that a lot of the things that, you know, the realities of heaven are also the realities of earth in those sorts of ways. Amen. Now, Giovanni, I want to ask you about one other thing. I mean, unless there's something else that you want to um, talk about specifically, I wanted you to um, talk about your passion for designing the coats of arms, the heralds. I mean, if for the people who are listening, if you watch my, um, my episodes, if you see it on YouTube, you'll see my, um, my own faith talk card that's up there and and that image was in fact created by Giovanni who we are speaking with today so Giovanni I want to just get you to talk a little bit about that and and how you got started in that and what it is that you find unique about being able to put together the elements or the components of the the coat of arms in order to express a particular um, experience or theology and just tell us a little bit about that and of course tell us um, how we can if somebody wanted to get one of those designed for their church or their family, um, how they can reach out to you. Well, thank you, Reverend Glover, for this opportunity to sort of talk about what this is that I do. So for me, my real passion for heraldry actually started out of genealogical research. 
So in my family, it's always been known that we had this one design that was used going back you know, many centuries that was used by the family. And as I began researching a little more in depth into our family records that we have, I started to realize, well, surely, you know, in 200 or, you know, in the 400 years that we've been in America and then, you know, the other centuries that we've been in Europe, surely, you know, other marriages and things must have happened. It must be somehow that the design that we have right now is inaccurate only because there's this concept where people are able to add things depending on, you know, if certain families marry into their family. So I figured, well, certainly, you know, it's been long enough that like just by pure chance, probably the one that we're using is outdated. So this really began as a way to update um, that coat of arms. And I've always been personally interested in any form of graphic design. So graphic design then paired with my other passion of history, I always think is very interesting, the fun, you know, marriage that you get of those two and really what you can explain through them. So if we then take this and translate it into the coat of arms that I've designed for Faith Talk, we can actually see certain elements and messaging communicated directly through this design. So I'm thinking first, especially of the central element. So this cross with the water on it. Well, really, when I was designing this, my intent was to represent our washing and cleansing of spirit through our belief in Jesus Christ. So what this means, you know, what this translates to on like a visual basis, this very sort of complicated but also simple concept translates to a like a watery cross, if you think about it, because we're being, you know, in a certain sense, washed by the cross. So we have that imagery coming in very literally and also very sort of poetically onto this design. Mm -hmm. Then we also see these, we see these hearts that are around the shield and that represented to me, that combined with the water, these two aspects of prayer. So prayer both cleanses us and it also inspires us. So these flaming hearts are really this act of devotion, this conversion of heart, if you will, showing us that faith not that faith can be this major source of inspiration for us and this major motivator in our lives to really sort of like as people would literally say get the fire burning in us then on the central element that i have the shield with the scroll on it that's really a representation of scripture and recognizing especially that for this organization and for the denomination that it belongs to or that it you know that you reverend glover belong to that faith, that scripture is such a central element of faith so just really sort of re-emphasizing that again as this visual representation and saying you know this is what we're all about as an organization putting scripture right on the front there and saying this is the basis of where the rest of it got started Amen. so if anybody is in your audience is interested in having one of these designed for themselves or their family or their church you can Reach out to me either through Instagram on my account called the Campus Herald. So that's the underscore campus underscore herald, all lowercase. Or they could write to me via email at the stag herald, all one word. So that's T H E S T A G H E R A L D at gmail.com. And I'd be more than welcome to design coats of arms for any organization that would like to reach out to me. So I thank you again for offering me the opportunity to uh, sort of plug myself and my business here, but also for letting me to share about my faith tradition and 
why I really am passionate about my faith with your audience. And and I'm going to take this opportunity to remind you that you're supposed to be working on one for my family, right? <laughs> oh, there's something in the works. Don't worry. <laughs> well, listen, um, what we have done today is prove that as we draw from the richness of diverse faith traditions, we enter into this profitable region of spiritual growth, as well as building community through our um, ecumenical dialogue. And as we learn about the religious other, we can dismantle uh, harmful stereotypes while we also grow in our own religious experience. So Giovanni, I want to thank you for calling in today and thank you for so richly contributing to Faith Talk. I really appreciate you coming in and I think we're going to have to get you to come back in on another date. And thank you, Reverend Glover, for having me and God bless to all your viewers. Amen. So you've been listening to Faith Talk and I certainly thank you for being a part of our listening community. The theological views of any of my guests are not always reflective of my own opinions in theology. However, we intend to allow people freedom to let their voice be heard and to share their God experience with our listening community. I want to thank Giovanni, um, as well as the people around the world who have joined in as, as part of this listening community. Please visit the website www reverendjstuartglover.com and leave your comments on these episodes which are always open for criticism. And on that website you can also register as a guest on the show and, and contact me directly by email or even leave a voicemail right through the website. So thank you for listening and God bless you and we shall meet again. Amen. Amen.